As usual, ahead of a budget or autumn statement, the rumours are flying around about what Chancellor of the Exchequer, Jeremy Hunt, will announce. Unusually this year, there are relatively few rumours about pension tax relief reform, but some of the rumours which have been persistent have been about the potential reform or simplification of ISAs and potential changes to inheritance tax. In 2023, there were 12 million ISA subscriptions, making them one of the most popular products in the UK. But are there too many of them? And if, as predicted, the government decides to cut IHD, what impact will this have? I'm Damien Fantato, Deputy Editor of FT Advisor, and with me to find out are Tom Selby, Head of Retirement Policy at AJ Bell, and Tim Morris, IFA at Russell & Co. Hello both. Hi, Damien. Hi, Damien. So, broadly speaking, uh, Tom, is there a need for ISA reform uh, in the autumn statement? Uh, So, AJ Bell's been been advocating for simplification of ISAs for for a while. Um, I wouldn't say there's need for fundamental reform to happen immediately the autumn statement so we've been pushing for for long-term um reform of ISAs and yet you know, reform that's realistic but the the current situation that we have where there are six different versions of ISAs introduced by different governments with slightly different aims and different allowances is is clearly not ideal I think what as when you look at the the pensions tax system I think if you looked at the ISA system from from a clean sheet of paper nobody would design what we have at the moment um our, our research suggests that that level of complexity puts people off engaging with the product and understandably so because it's so difficult to know exactly which one's right for you uh, and it feels like now is a, a sensible time to look at that landscape to try to simplify and hopefully create something that people find it easier to to engage with because at the moment it's it's far too difficult Tim, what, what do you think? Um, yeah, I totally agree with what Tom's saying there. So the, the beauty of ISAs has always been the fact that they're simple to understand. And so, you know, to overcomplicate and to get to the situation where we've got to, as Tom was saying, with these six different versions, it's just crazy. And so, yeah, it's just stripping it back to what it was. You know, go back to the beauty of ISAs, just keep it nice and simple, um, easy to understand. And, yeah, just make sure more people have been encouraged to use them. Or, you know, as many people as possible continue to use them because, you know, a lot of people are at the moment. and. Um, um, yeah, you know, let's keep it that way and make sure people are continuing to save and invest. And um, yeah, the easier, the better. Cool. I mean, one of the rumours that has been fairly persistent has been about the um, plans to relax ISA rules to allow uh, savers to pay into one, more than one ISA in, in, a, in a tax year. Uh, Tim, staying with you, what do you think about this as somebody who, I guess, um, is involved in planning people's finances on a, on a day-to-day basis? Um, yeah, so I mean, building on what I just mentioned, um, you know, seventy percent of Brits, um, I was reading, no ISAs um, in the, one of the latest reports. Fifty percent of them know the different types. Um, only a third of them know the allowance, and and you know, having different allowances does confuse things. But you know, what I really liked was, you know, nearly a decade ago they introduced the nicer concept, new ISA, where by it was meant to, you know, make things again a bit more simpler in terms of moving from um, cash to investments um, within an ISA. You know, being able to switch from one to the other, and and what's actually happened what we've seen over the years though is that more people you know have been moving to investments and that could be because of the fact that that was made easier so um you know we saw a steady increase um you know from around about sort of 2016 um where then we went from 
uh, well, around 80% in cash ISAs to more like, um, you know, just just over 60%. Um, so, so you know, there's a lot more shifting into investments, which is good. Um, you know, people probably have shifted back. That was as of last year. So they would have shifted back to cash, I'm sure, more so this year. But um, but then it's making sure it's easy for them to then move back into investments as and when to benefit from the stock markets picking up again. Um, so, yeah, you know, keeping things like that as easy as possible has got to be a good thing. Uh, Tom, do you agree? Uh, yes, yes. No, I, th- I think the, the the rule which says that you can only pay into pay and subscribe to one type of each version of an ISA each tax year has always seemed quite an odd one to me. I've never, I was never, I've never had anyone at HMRC or anywhere 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 else be able to explain to me why that needs to exist. You can pay into multiple different pensions in a in a tax year, and it works perfectly fine. You can pay into different versions of uh, versions of an ISA each tax year, and that's fine. So why does that rule exist? It doesn't seem to make sense. So scrapping it to me seems like a, a sensible way to go. And I, I think it also um, potentially paves the way for, for wider, more radical simplification. So if you were going to move to a world where the benefit, the best bits of the existing ISA landscape were were merged into a single product. Then you'd want people to be able to choose multiple different versions of that product if they wanted to. So there might there may be uh, a provider within that kind of consolidated world that offers a better cash rate, and there may be a provider that has a better choice of stocks and shares. And so allowing people to have that choice in a simplified world to me to me would make um would make would make a lot of a lot of sense. So I think the the key is going to be what 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 comes alongside this proposal, presuming that the stories that we've read are are, are correct. If it's just that proposal in isolation, it, it might make a little bit of difference to a few people's lives and it seems seems sensible, but you know it's not it's not going to particularly rock anyone's world. But if that's the the kind of starting point for more radical simplification, then I could think it could be a, a really, really positive thing. Yeah, yeah, totally agree with that because um yeah, but what I would add is, you know, going back to saying about only being able to pay into one ISA, you know, I think that's maybe an archaic rule whereby, you know, they were trying to stop people paying into, you know, because I did see this quite a bit going back, you know, sort of 15, 16 years when I started advising and people were paying into, you know, cash and stocks and shares, as it was at the time. And, um, and and so, you know, they said, well, OK, you know, I don't know why that rule was in place in the first place, but, you know, I think it was to stop them exceeding the total allowance. Um, but, yeah, it just made things more complicated and, and hence why the new ISA concept uh, for me was a good thing where it's just so well yeah just pay into one you know split the money between stocks and shares and cash but um yeah we just need to sort of get back to that that simpler idea yeah i mean we we alluded to this a little bit earlier um uh, the the number of ices um 12 we've got 12 million subscribing to ices at all uh, uh, um 17,000 people subscribe to the innovative finance ISA, which is, was set up um uh, by George Osborne to in, in, for peer-to-peer in, investing. Um, is that an example of a of an ISA that you think could um, uh, be put out of its misery, Tom? Uh, yes, potentially. Um, I mean, it's, it's certainly an ex- example of why we've we're reaching the point where we've got a system that's so complicated that people struggle to understand it. So the innovative finance ISA launched because the government wanted to encourage a specific way of investing in a specific part of of the market, as you, as you say, has not particularly taken off quite a lot of high risk investing i think going on in that part of the market as well which which concerns me now clearly if you're if you're going to remove a product the challenge is that you would you do have people investing within that product and you need to think about what happens to them so it's part of the problem i think when you launch lots of different versions of an isa is 
the complexity has to remain to an extent because those people are remaining in those invested investments and they'll need to to divest and it's never simple but it, in in an ideal world i think if if the if the innovative finance ISO were, were no longer here there's clearly very few people in it it would make things a lot a lot easier but there's just just some challenges there in transitioning from a world where we have it to a world where we don't have it as always is the case mm. what do you think Tim? Yeah, I mean, for me, people just didn't get it. And there's just a real lack of awareness. Um, so, yeah, I get what Tom's saying in terms of, um, you know, the, the issue of um, people who are invested in it, because there's so few, like you say, just 17,000, it, yeah, it wouldn't be a big problem. Um, but yeah, it's just, you know, say, yeah, lack of awareness. Um, you know, the, if ISA, there's, you know, I've mentioned um, the other ISAs, such as the LISA, as a lot of people call it, Lifetime ISA. Um, but yeah, if ISA, I mean, it's the, if only people knew it was uh, available, ISA really is what it should be called because, yeah, it just didn't work. But also what didn't sit well with me is that um, people, you know, investing in peer-to-peer isn't something that I'd be encouraging, you know, people, my clients to do. And and I don't, it doesn't sit too well for me in terms of retail investors investing in that because I had a conversation with somebody when it came out, um, you know, six, seven years ago, whenever it was, and, uh, you know, they they said, oh, well, Tim, you could, you could lead the way with this in terms of, you know, getting, encouraging people to, you know, be first, um, you know, investing into it and uh, I said well no thanks uh, I'll, I'll let the others be early adopters and see how it goes and I'm glad I did because yeah just just peer-to-peer for me just doesn't didn't sit right and yeah still I have that same view today. Very sensible move Tim I think yeah <laughs> and, and you touched on the the lifetime ISA the LISA the LISA whatever whatever we call it uh, yeah. unlike the IFI so that has been a popular uh, a popular product and and um, Many uh, financial commentators and brokers have, have suggested it for for people who are saving up for their first time, uh, first time um, for first time buyers. Um, but uh, there's been some criticism of the fact that its its rules are now um, a little bit outdated. Uh, Tom, do you think this is something that can be saved, but with tweaks? Uh, so, so the the lifetime ISA has has been a popular product. It's a really useful product for. Um, for, for younger people, as you say, trying to get on the housing ladder, um, I find the 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 fact that the property price has remained fixed at four hundred fifty thousand pounds for for so long is is frustrating. That clearly needs to be um, updated. The the early exit penalty is a real frustration. Um, I think actually the age category as well. When you think about the lifetime ISA for basic rate taxpayers who are self employed, actually it'd be a really good alternative to a pension but lots of self-employed people fall outside that age range um you've also got that early exit penalty of 25 percent, which means if you take the money out then it effectively acts as a 6.25 percent early withdrawal charge a kind of early withdrawal charge that i think would make the fca's eyes wince if they were looking at that in the private sector but was apparently fine for something that was that was launched by the government so i, I think there are there are ways that that could be improved. So reducing that early withdrawal charge to 20% would make sense to me. Um, increasing the property uh, price to to align with the way the markets moved would make sense to me. Um, clearly, the, the government finds itself in a, a reasonable financial straitjacket. So the extent to which they want to do that, the autumn statement, not too sure. But it, it wouldn't cost a huge amount of money. And if, if they would do that, say at the autumn statement or at the budget, that would be a, a pretty low-cost way of saying to, I guess, young first-time buyers in particular, that the government's trying to give you a helping hand. Uh, what do you think, Tim? 
Um, yeah, so big fan of the um, Lisa Lisa and um, whichever you want to call it. But uh, yeah, basically the problem with it is, as Tom's mentioned, that it, it's penalising people too much because, you know, this whole thing of, of having a, the £450,000 cap uh, for buying a property just doesn't work for people in, you know, London, South East, unfortunately. And so, um, you know, and in fact, um, I was reading saying that uh, if it had increased in line with property prices um, since it was introduced in 2017, it actually would be more like about 600000 now because, you know, they've gone about 35% um, roughly. Um, so, yeah, it, it hasn't uh, kept pace with what it should be doing. But it, it is something that has been more popular. And a lot of my clients were clients were early adopters and, and sort of uh, I said, well, yeah, happy to, for you to be a guinea pig with this one because for me, it you know, it's a good thing. And, and actually, yeah, self-employed clients as well. It has worked well for, you know, some of those, as Tom mentioned. Um, but yeah, it's just it's penalising people too much with this twenty five percent you charge, and also the um, six six point two five percent penalty as well. Um, so you know they what they should be doing is just reducing, you know, taking away the twenty percent bonus that, that people are getting, and, and not penalising them so heavily, which is you know the, totally what they don't want um, firms to be doing in financial services is to yeah have these heavy exit penalties. Yet uh, quite ironic, they've got the biggest one <laughs> going pretty much. <laughs> Yes, exactly. yes, there has been one recent notable example of uh, extra fees being scrapped because of a consumer duty, but that's another podcast, I think, isn't it? <laughs> yes, um, <laughs> um, go down that rabbit hole. <laughs> yeah. um, one of the um, rumours which has been relatively persistent has been um, the idea of a British ISA or a great British ISA. Um, this was promoted a couple of times, uh, once um, by one of the firms, but it seems to have picked up steam and since then, and, and the government seems to be considering it. This is an, an ISA that would invest in or have in in UK UK equities. Um, what do you think of, of this idea, Tom? Um, so it, 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 um, I'm I'm naturally not particularly comfortable with it. So clearly, AJ Bell's been pushing for ISA simplification, and the idea of creating potentially a new type of ISA called a British ISA feels to me like more complexity rather than more simplification. Um, in terms of, I guess, it, it would it, you'd need to see exactly what it looked like to know whether or not it's something that you may be supportive of or not. So I've seen some ideas bandied around suggesting that perhaps the, the ISA allowance could be increased by £5,000, say, and then that £5,000 would have to go to some categorised UKGB businesses. I've seen at the at the other extreme, which is something which I would be much more worried about, the idea that you would you would limit all ISA investing with tax incentives to just UK-based companies. Now that would clearly have detrimental impact for diversification and choice for people. I think that's something that the vast majority of the financial services industry wouldn't be particularly supportive of. I think it'd be quite bad. Um, for for consumers so we'll, we'll have to see what they come out with but we, we've been very keen to push to the treasury that actually if you if you if you're willing to think long term about this then simplification should naturally lead to benefits for the uk economy over the long term anyway because people tend to invest in their home country more than anywhere else more investment should be more money coming into the uk I don't, I don't think there's necessarily an need to add complexity or restrict people's choices in order to, to get to that outcome. Yeah, I guess uh, investing in companies like Diageo, which sell beer all around the world, is probably not a, a fantastic, is not a, you yeah. know, not the, not the boost for the UK economy that people might think. <laughs> 
Um, Tim, mm. what do you think of particularly on the diversification elements, I guess? Yeah, so, I mean, for me, it is for me, I'm keen on it, just go against the whole simplification thing and, and having that additional 5,000 um, allowance then, um, is another complexity because, you know, you've got the 4,000 with the LISA, which is, you know, in included in the um 20,000 the current limit and so yeah okay a lot of people don't qualify for that um but yeah the complexity side doesn't sit that well with me um but in terms of you know UK investments I think yes as, as Tom said a lot of people you know especially DIY investors self-investors will have more of a UK bias but um you know the, the report I was reading um from Bloomberg um the other week was saying you know the UK risk decade in the doldrums and, and and you know there have been massive outflows for um you know we've basically only seen two years of inflows in fact into UK funds um positive inflows that is um since 2005 and that's in 2009 and 2015 and actually we've got to a point where there's been a billion pound outflows per month um from UK funds and you know 44 billion and withdrawn since since um 2016 um so so you know that it has had an impact and and you know a lot of um, fund managers have, have almost given up on on UK stock market and, and it does have an impact you know okay yes a lot of the companies in the FTSE 100 are international companies and their earnings are overseas um, but yeah it's just having confidence in the UK stock market and, and especially for smaller companies because that's where we do need the money coming in there the lifeblood of the UK you know the, these domestic companies whose earnings are you know based in the UK so I think they're the ones who've really suffered and, and that's why having more money coming in if we can encourage that for me is a good thing but the caveat being we need to you know make sure it's done in, in a manner that is easy for people to understand yeah that's an interesting interesting point Tim and I think that's that that's the challenge with um, doing this through ISIS potentially is that the government through its mansion house reforms is clearly trying to push for private equity style money that should, is hopefully going to go to these kind of high growth unlisted companies um and I guess the challenge with ISIS is I guess the idea of getting money in an ISA into an unlisted illiquid investment given what we saw happen with Woodford not too long ago um, yeah yeah makes me feel particularly nervous I'm sure they're not going to go down down that route but that's that's obviously where the government ideally I think wants to go if it could well, do it just it'd be yeah. far, far too risky prices in my opinion yeah, that's that's the danger, you know, that long term assets. Okay, yeah, that's related to pensions more so. But yeah, what we don't want is something like that with ISAs because, you know, again, you know, going back to mention with the if ISA, as I call it now, with the peer to peer. Yeah. So that's, again, it's just, yeah, mm. you know, we, we can let's stay away from that. It's, uh, you know, a bit of a sort of red herring. We don't need those sort of anomalies, if you like, um, you know, muddying the water. Yeah. Yeah. And perhaps given that it's a product which is one of the purest retail products out there, perhaps it's the focus should be more on encouraging people to turn their cash ices into stocks and shares ices rather than trying to get people who are already invested to invest more of their money into the into into particular particular firms and companies. Yeah, yeah, very much so because you know the markets will start to pick back up at some point, and um, yeah, we need to make sure investors are benefit or people are benefiting from that by investing um, going forwards. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Finally, um, on a slightly different topic, one of the rumours, fairly persistent rumours about the the autumn statement has been that there are going to be cuts um, to IHT. I think just the just the other just the other day there was a suggestion that. IHT is going to be cut from 40% to 30%. Um, and these rumors seem to be gathering pace. But this is 
something which can be controversial because relatively few people actually pay um, IHT. Tim, as an advisor who responsible on a on a day-to-day -day basis for for planning your way around these, would a forty percent to thirty percent cut uh, make your life uh, much easier? Well, I mean, we've, we've been flip-flopping around with this a bit because um, it's been banded about just the other week that uh, we were going to see IHT scrapped, which, um, say, I couldn't see happening because uh, the government, as they now seem to have realised, they're going to lose about six billion in revenue from uh, lost taxes. So, um, so yeah, uh, in terms of a cut, um, then, yeah, I think that is more likely to happen. Um, you know, the danger with these things is, you know, the devil's always in the detail, as I say, but it's how it impacts um, clients. So, you know, if they're a scrapped IHT, yeah, great. But the downside is actually clients who've planned, um, you know, done their planning, putting money into trust, for example, would then think, well, hang on a minute, I've given up access to that money. Um, you know, can I now access it? And the answer would be no. Um, so, you know, it, 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 there are always unintended consequences to these things. But, um, you know, if it's a case of saying, well, you know, if they were to reduce um, the rate of IHC, then, you know, happy days. All good with me, really. Yeah, I guess there's quite a large industry. Going back to our previous conversation, there's quite a large industry of people such as offering things like AMICs that people have invested into, which are based entirely around the existence well, of uh, yeah, Exactly. IHC. That's the other thing I was thinking. Yeah, very much so. It's, you know, people yeah. are taking that additional risk, which is a level of risk that, you know, a lot of people are comfortable with. And that's fine. Um, but yeah, again, I mean, those those structures, it's a bit easier to shift your money out of those. But, uh, you know, it's like, well, yeah, it, it's going to have a lot of disruption and, um, and yeah, could be a potential headache um, for, for a lot of people. Yeah. Mm. Tom, what do you think? Yeah, well, well interesting on, on the on piggybacking on that point, a lot a lot of people invest will choose to invest in pensions because they're generally free from IHT and can be passed on tax free on death as well. So you will, you know, if we move to a world where IHT was scrapped altogether, for example, then people who have made contributions to pensions lock their money up until age fifty five. They may, they may have they may have done that thinking that actually one of the key reasons is the death benefits for pensions. And now they they may be thinking, well, I could have kept that outside of the estate because IHT been, I could have left it in the estate, sorry, because IHT is not going to be levied. Um, mm -hmm. I think, you know, we'll, we'll, as, as Tim said, the devil will be in the detail in all of this. Um, it, it would seem to be easier to increase the, the allowance rather than cut the rate. But um, I think there's all of this stuff is kind of dripping in politics now, isn't it? I think you've got uh, mm -hmm. Rishi Sunak behind in the polls. He's looking for kind of clear blue water between himself and and Keir Starmer, and it may be a calculation that, A, clearly this is going to be popular in the Conservative heartlands, and actually outside of the Conservative heartlands, lots of people, as you kind of alluded to, Damien, who, are, who aren't affected by IHT just don't like the idea of money being taxed on debt, so I think it will have wide popularity, and, it, and it's potentially a bit of a political trap for Keir Starmer, because does he support that and say, I like the idea of allowing people to pass more money on after they've worked hard all their lives, or does he say this is a, a tax cut for the rich at the same time as the government's potentially reducing or not increasing people's benefits by as much? Um, I, th I think it's it feels to me as much a, a political trap as a, as any kind of long term thinking. But I think that's the the kind of stage of the political cycle we're at now. I think is setting yeah. political traps yes. and hoping hoping other people fall into them. Yeah, I said Rishi's been fishing down the back of the sofa to see what he could find. Obviously, wasn't enough there, so we thought, hang on a minute, <laughs> can't get. <laughs> what else can we do? <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but uh, yeah, 
yeah, it is a case of, you know, for me, the allowances have been frozen that long. So many people have been dragged into IHC that shouldn't be paying it. That's what they should be addressing for me, uh, you know, in addition to perhaps some other measures. But uh, first and foremost, you know, that that really needs looking into. Yeah. Cool. Great. Well, thanks very much, um, Tim and uh, Tom. Thank you very much for listening. And uh, well, I guess we'll find out uh, soon enough. Uh, tune in again uh, next week for the next edition of the uh, FT Advisor podcast. Thank you. This is the story of The One. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done.